From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. Opioid addiction is a national epidemic, and with an estimated 1,200 overdose deaths in Philadelphia alone last year, the city is taking extraordinary steps. We have an obligation to do everything we can. All sides weigh in on the proposed use of safe injection sites. They never had a death. We are not in support of these sites at this point. As the city moves forward to tackle this public health crisis, the countdown is on. As all eyes will be on the Philadelphia Eagles and the New England Patriots at Super Bowl 52. People always ask me what's happening on the other side. I said, well, they're praying too. The Eagles head man of faith, his message to the team, and his advice to fans. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the opioid epidemic. Abuse of heroin and other drugs has become a national health crisis with an estimated 116 opioid-related deaths each day. The cost of the crisis is backbreaking. Policing, treatment centers, autopsies, and more. So Philadelphia sued pharmaceutical companies claiming they knowingly misled doctors about their product. Defendants distorted a 1980 letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, citing it as, quote, scientific support that opioids were safe and not addictive. It was not. Now the city is working on dealing with the addicted and to stop overdoses. One way, they say, is safe injection sites. Philadelphia is now the first major city to move forward with this approach. We have an obligation to do everything we can to prevent those people from dying. So what's a safe injection site? How will it work? And does it encourage drug use? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Patrick Trainer, a special agent and the public information officer for the Drug Enforcement Administration. We have David T. Jones, commissioner for the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services. And we also have Luke Dunn, who is in recovery. And now he works as a homeless outreach worker at Prevention Point Philadelphia. Gentlemen, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. So for those individuals who may not understand the scope of the opioid crisis, I want to give I want to give each of you an opportunity to take 30 seconds and to just describe the problem from your specific vantage point. And we'll start with you, Patrick. Sure. Uh, It is widely known that we are in the grips of the worst drug crisis uh, in our history. From the DEA's perspective as a federal law enforcement agency, we largely see there is a huge influx uh, an abundant supply of fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid that is anywhere uh, between 50 to 100 times purer than heroin that has absolutely flooded our community. I want to jump over here to you, David, before we go to Luke. How is it from a city perspective and someone who works with people dealing with behavioral health? The epidemic is uh, proportions that we haven't seen. So in Philadelphia, for example, in 2015, we saw over 700 opioid uh, overdose-related deaths. In 2016, we saw over 900 uh, uh, opioid-related overdose deaths. And we, in 2017, we think the number will be upwards around 1,200. And so 
we recognize that it really requires us to look broader and figure out what strategies that we need to add to our continuum to really reverse this trend. You were in the thick of this. Explain how it is for someone who's in the middle of it. It surpasses anything I would have imagined. I mean, I remember in 06, I think when the initial fentanyl um, thing ran through Philadelphia, I buried three people just during that um, blip, really, compared to compared to what it is now. I'm just happy to be in a spot where the city's starting to, like, um, you know, reconsider things and, and maybe looking at it like uh, in some new ways. The number of people who are dying, I've heard stories about Kensington folks running neighbors being trained in the use of Narcan to try to save lives right in front of their homes. Um, why is it so uncontrollable and and um, and it seems to be spreading and getting worse, not just in Philadelphia, but across the country? Well, for, from DEA's perspective, fentanyl is a drug that can be produced in a laboratory uh, for uh, significantly less than to produce a kilogram of heroin. However, uh, kilograms of fentanyl and heroin sell for the same price now. So we, what we see is that drug trafficking organizations, it's actually in their interest to traffic fentanyl because it's far more profitable for them than some of the traditional uh, other street drugs such as, uh, such as heroin. And that's led to the increase in uh, and fentanyl in this area. The city of Philadelphia recently sued pharmaceutical companies, David, because that's how a lot of people get their entree. I interviewed a, a school teacher. You would never think that she would, but it started with a hip injury. She using um, prescription drugs. Next thing you know, she's addicted to heroin. That's exactly right. I mean, the challenge is, is that, you know, what we found is that a number of people, uh, based upon having um, some experiences with chronic pain, uh, we received an opioid from uh, their physician. And so um, what then happens is they become kind of addicted. And so we really are doing a lot of work educating uh, and making sure that physicians are informed around um, when to prescribe and then uh, making sure that they actually are decreasing the dosage in terms of what's available so that uh, people uh, actually don't become addicted in the first place. And it really is a strategy that we're using. And then uh, for those folks who um, you know, are addicted, we really are committed to uh, getting them uh, access to uh, treatment. And we really expanded our treatment continuum in Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and what's recovery? I mean, um, I know you had, uh, Luke, talk about what it's like going through this. It's a process. It's a lifelong thing. It's a better time now, I think, than it has been in the past because people are starting to be more open-minded about, um, like, medicated-assisted treatments and modalities. Um, like, I myself, I'm on methadone, and, and, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that publicly, like, whereas uh, not that many years ago, I probably would have really second-guessed, like, even mentioning that because of... Uh, the stigma, or even just being a drug user. But I think more people need to start being more open about it and having a discussion about it. But because this is a painful process yeah. without some type of assistance for a lot of people. Yeah, painful and, and relapse is just is par for the course as it is with any disease. Instead. And I think the, yeah. the view of it now is that it's a health crisis. And yeah. you can't, you know... Could you talk about the health aspects of this? Because this is a totally different view. And then I'll and I'll talk to uh, Patrick about this, too, because this is a totally different view of how to deal with drug addiction, because in the past you just get locked up. 
We uh, really uh, fortunately learned quite a bit from uh, when we went through the uh, crack epidemic where we tried to arrest our way out of that and realized that that really wasn't a solution, that the solution was to get people uh, connected to treatment. And I think we really have to pay attention to the science. There is significant evidence that says if you can get an individual um, you know, connected and participating in medication-assisted treatment uh, along with uh, some uh, outpatient uh, services or, you know, just a number of kind of, uh, you know, just kind of coordinated services um, that that um, individual just in terms of their health outcomes improved dramatically. Yeah. And and I know like law enforcement is literally helping people a lot of times. Narcan, uh, for, for those of you who aren't familiar, is an opioid reversal uh, drug. It's used to treat opioid addiction and opioid uh, overdoses. It's very effective. Uh, it's very simple to use. And we encourage uh, everyone in the law enforcement community uh, and everyone in the public uh, to carry it and get trained in it. You know, you can't just arrest people when you come and you see someone in the middle of crisis. For a very long time, heroin addiction and addiction in general was looked at as solely a law enforcement and criminal justice mm. issue. The attitudes have changed dramatically in the fact that it's an extremely complex issue. Uh, it's far more complex than any one of us can address in and of them in and of ourselves. Uh, Last year, uh, the DEA participated in the mayor's task force that Commissioner Jones organized, and that was a very good opportunity for everybody from the treatment, public health, data, the medical field, and law enforcement to come together and address this, again, recognizing that this is a very complex and multifaceted issue. Recently, the city of Philadelphia announced that it would be one of the first major cities to have safe injection sites. For those folks who don't know what that means, what is a safe injection site? It's a place where an individual would go to then use illicit drugs. They would actually uh, receive additional support that would be Uh, medical staff available. One of the uh, original safe injection sites was created um, in uh, Vancouver, Canada. In that safe injection site, they averaged uh, seven overdoses a day. Over a 10-year period, they never had uh, a death because what they were able to do was to uh, intervene to use Narcan, again, the antidote that reverses an opioid kind of overdose, and then uh, help later, in some cases, connect those folks to treatment, but certainly uh, they didn't die, which then, you know, as has been indicated, is really important because you need to obviously have people stay alive in order then to get connected to treatment. Are other folks going to be able to come in? Is any illicit drug going to be allowed? If this type of a place was available for you, do you think you would have sought treatment earlier? Just from what I've seen from being around Prevention Point, um, I feel the more times I'm coming in contact with people that are able to provide services, the higher the odds are, right, of me actually accessing those services. Usually, people are able to access services better when they have someone advocating for them. And if you have one successful outcome, you're likely to capitalize on that outcome. And then maybe, you know, maybe it starts off with something small, like, oh, I've got my food stamps turned on. And that's like a little mini sort of victory, victory, right? And then after that, you know, you move to another victory uh, that's bigger. I mean, it doesn't always happen that someone comes in and sort of right away has like an epiphany of like, uh, 
I'm through with using and I want yeah. treatment immediately. From a law enforcement perspective, I, I've gone in neighborhoods where there were former, quote, shooting galleries. And some people have said, you know, who are opponents of this approach have said, look, this is a city sanctioned shooting gallery in a way. How does law enforcement view something like that? For the DEA, it's a uh, it's a measure of concern for us. And as I mentioned before, we work quite closely with a lot of the agencies across the city uh, as part of the mayor's task force. But just because we work together doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. we have to agree with everything. And we are not in support of, of these sites at this point. And part of the reasoning behind that is that w- we feel this might actually facilitate or encourage drug use. Because if people feel like, oh, well, if I use drugs, at least it won't be dangerous. I could just go to the city site. I know a doctor will be there. I won't die. And, and it's good. Well, there's a lot of questions that uh, need to be answered, as Commissioner Jones knows. Mm. This is just an announcement. There is no formal. Uh, there's, there's a lot no, of work. To there's be a done. lot of work that needs to be done. But based on the fentanyl that we're seeing, and, and even Vancouver, which does have the approved site, actually had an increase of 100 fatal deaths last year as opposed to the year before because of fentanyl. Now, fentanyl has legitimate uses uh, in the medical field, uh, but in, in from our experience. There is no safe way to use illicit fentanyl. There just isn't. Safe injection sites don't necessarily promote um, more drug utilization. The data actually uh, looking at people who uh, visited uh, safe injection sites and if there was a frequency of visits and if they were connected with a a counselor, over 46% of those individuals then went on to be connected with treatment. And that's the kind of outcome we are looking for. And we think that it, it is just one part of a broader solution of strategies that we, you know, we need to put forward. I have to wrap up our discussion, but this is a complicated, multifaceted issue. Give your, your final thoughts on this. I mean, there's a lot of effort nationally that is being focused on this issue and I feel like it's the most compassionate discussion that I've ever heard when talking about drug addiction. Do you have hope? I do. I do have hope. The biggest issue for us, we just want the public to be aware that a perfect feeder system exists with the abuse of prescription opioids such as oxycodone. These drugs are chemically identical to heroin. They're very effective at treating pain. Um, but but they can also be, uh, they're very addictive and they can easily be abused. Everyone's efforts here today to raise awareness about the link between prescription opioid and heroin abuse is, is, is vital to addressing this right now. Yeah, and David, and we'll give a final word to Luke. If we uh, continue to rely on the science, recognizing that, you know, for example, medication-assisted treatment, um, that, you know, we are having folks uh, trained in Narcan, I think strategies like those and then continuing to be innovative at some point, uh, I feel like we will begin to turn the tide. Yeah, and final word, I mean, you're on this other side. Um, the fact that I'm sitting here and having this discussion gives me a huge amount of hope. And, you know, and just even some of the solutions that have arrived um, recently are incredible to me. They, you know, they blow my mind. Um, I have a lot of hope. Well, I want to say thank you um, to our guests here on Flashpoint, to um, Patrick Trainer, to David T. Jones, <laughs> and to Luke Dunn. Thank you so much for coming to the KYW studios and talking about this Flashpoint in the news. Thank you for having me. Next up in just hours, the Eagles will take on the Patriots in Super Bowl 52. Now, what's amazing is that people always ask me what's happening on the other side. I said, well, they're praying too. The head chaplain's take on what's driving the team and his advice for Eagles fans.
Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that has Philly hot under the collar is the New England Patriots. And in just a matter of hours, the Birds will get a chance for a rematch at Super Bowl 52 and hopefully clinch the Eagles' first Super Bowl win ever. Former Eagles tailback, the Reverend Herb Lusk, is here. He is the head chaplain for the Eagles, alongside Reverend Ted Winsley. Lusk provides Bible study to the coaches and will give the final chapel service to the team before the game. Reverend Lusk, welcome back to the KYW Studios. How you doing? Always good to be in your presence. You're doing great. You said that this team is unlike any team you've ever seen. They had a direct connection to the oh, big I, one. I, 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 there's no question about that. What is the difference between this team? Because over the past 15 years, you dealt specifically with their faith, you know, delivering the services that you deliver. What have you seen change and what do you think is different about this team that people are sort of like so excited and happy? And Well, these guys are different kind of guys. I mean, when I came to the league back in the day, I mean, we had some crazy players who got in some crazy trouble. These guys are a lot different than we are. And I think uh, we should uh, attribute most of this to their parents. I can't take credit for Wentz. He came here with a solid faith. Uh, Nick Foles came to this team with a solid faith. Many of these guys, so their parents and their pastors, before they even came in contact with me, did a real good job with these kids. Because, I mean, we've had different teams where we've had fights off the field, fights on the field, beefs between teams, calling people out, blaming the coach, this, that, and the (laughs) third. But you have not heard a peep of that. No, this and, and this team is together. I remember when Buddy Ryan was a coach, and what he used to do with the players was on Friday was a short practice. He'd go and buy a bunch of beer and cheesesteaks and food, and these guys would actually be at the stadium from 1 o'clock until 6. They wouldn't go home until 6 o'clock. They were family. Now, this team is different. I mean, they're not going to be sitting around drinking beers and stuff like that for the most part, these guys we're talking about. But they are family like that team that Buddy Ryan's had, his defensive uh, squad. Same type of, of close-knitness, but it's because of Christ. It's because of their faith. It is their faith that binds them together. Yeah, and one of the things that I found fascinating in our last interview was the uh, activism in this team, just Mm -hmm. people uh, doing outreach, good things in the community. Not saying that that didn't happen in previous teams, Mm -hmm. but it's just the standard. Malcolm is an unbelievable social conscious young man. And then you got Long is unbelievable. Given his money, he raised a million dollars for water in Africa. Uh, You know, it's exciting to see it happen. I'm, I'm very pleased and proud of these guys. Yeah, and so you have the coaches' Bible study, and the, the coaches actually show up to this. The head coach shows up to it. As a matter of fact, the head coach was on ESPN, and they asked him about the chapel services, and he was gracious enough to give Herb Lusk honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> so what do y'all talk about? I mean, it's a game, but for a lot of people, this is real. This is life for them. What we talk about is life. Players have the same problems everyone else has. You can probably magnify it. I mean, if you got a young man that's tempted by bunch of beautiful women imagine uh, how much that is so with an NFL player who's single I mean, yeah. how does he live his life you know how does he conduct himself you know does he respect women I mean all those things are true to the Bible that we teach you played uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles you know what it's like to have all of those temptations outside of of what you do at work and, and so you you amplify it when you're when you're in the spotlight in this way not to mention you're in a winning spotlight. Yeah. Um, how do you stay focused? How do you think they've been able to stay focused and keep that mindset, that joint mindset on the field so that they can win week after week after week? 
One of the things I've noticed is that iron sharpens iron, and these guys, uh, they police each other. So the discipline sometimes comes from the team itself uh, on the inside. I mean, hey, guys, you know, we're going to stay, going to keep the faith. We're going to keep doing. We're, gonna, we're not going to be distracted. Will they pray for each other? Uh, they support each other. I mean, some of these guys are married, and, you know, they know how to treat their wives because we teach those things to them. It's, um, it's a big family. So Eagles fans, right? <laughs> so I was watching the last game, you know, the championship game. I'm on Twitter, and people were already losing the faith within <laughs> minutes. They're like, oh, as soon as that first touchdown came for the Vikings, they're like, oh, we, we're, we're a rough start. You know, I was like, it's, can y'all give them two minutes? And then as soon as they got that touchdown, it was all she wrote. Yeah. Talk about the faith that these fans need to have because they throw in the towel. They're so used to defeat. Yeah. That they throw in the towel within seconds. I got a lot of friends like that, and I just say to them, man, golly, I'm glad you're not rooting for me. But, you know, listen, the fans are the fans, and part of the game involves the highs and the lows. And even that the even the lows that the fans have, they kind of enjoy it and they laugh at each other about it. Uh, but you, when it's time, when the chips are down, those fans can make some noise. I'm going to tell you, we almost ran the Vikings out of here. The people heard the fans all the way in New Jersey. So, you know, I thumbs up for the fans. They're, they're, they're great. You're preparing because you're going to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You're going to have this final Bible study with the coaches. Mm-hmm. What are you, you going to be talking to them about? What's your lesson? Well, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of things, but uh, the thing that really strikes me, I'm not sure I'm going to talk about it, but this is a classic David-Goliath situation. You've got uh, Coach uh, Belichev, who has five Super Bowl rings. You have our Coach Doug Peterson, he has none. You've got five Super Bowl rings for uh, Brady. You've got no Super Bowl rings for a backup quarterback named Foles. We are not supposed to win, but I want all your listeners to know, read the story. Goliath came tumbling down. <laughs> we're going to win this. Yeah, I, I- feel like we're going to win. I feel like Philadelphia as a city has a momentum that has been building for a few years. And I do believe that Philadelphians are beginning to get their self-esteem up. The defeats year after year after year, they hear stories about you. And now the stories are positive. One of the things I'm going to share with the players and the coaches, and I'll share with the listeners, that your heart has to be greater than your challenge. Your heart Mm -hmm. has to be bigger than your challenge. And uh, the person with the most heart is the person who normally wins. Well, if you if that's the case, if that's the test, Philadelphia has the biggest heart. There you go. So are you going to give the final, I guess, yeah, service? Yeah, the chapel service, yes. So I suspect every player will be there. Well, we would hope that. You know, you know one thing about uh, the organization is they provide the chapel for the players, but they do not make it mandatory. And I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody has different you know, faith. Everybody has different ideas, and some people don't have faith. But the fact of the matter is— uh, and those of us who are believers, we, we don't want to force people into believing. I mean, we want them to believe freely. That's a big message you're going to have to give. And so this is your first time giving that pre-Super Bowl message. Yes. Do you feel some pressure here? No, I, I really don't. I, I feel every one of the the, the, the the sermons have to be strong sermons. I mean, and, and you know, the pressure is really for me, uh, it's, it's rightly dividing God's word. It's, it's not the pressure, the pressure of the players being in my presence or the coaches being in my presence, but more importantly, God is listening to what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. And I got to talk about Nick Foles a little bit because Mm -hmm. he, I mean, he came, you know, he was part of the team in 2012. He's been 
I mean, whenever he's put out there, he's done a great job. Then he kind of went, you know, he was bouncing around a little bit. Now he's back and was still the backup quarterback. But then when it was time for him to step forward, he did a great job. And him and Carson seem to have a good relationship. They have a very, very good relationship. And, and they're both faith, faith-driven uh, yeah. men. They're very, very strong believers. And, you know, I've been knowing Nick for a long time, even before he came here the second time. At one point, Nick had decided that he was not going to play football again. As a matter of fact, I have a text on my phone where he says, Herb, I'm finished. Uh, I feel that I, I should move on to do something else. Of course, we have our plans, but God has greater plans for us. Wow. And so it kind of brought him back. How does faith sort of help you oh. handle the type of pressure that these players are under? Oh, his faith is driving him. I mean, and of course, what his faith does is gives gives him a lot of confidence. I mean, you know. Nick was playing football against Minnesota with a purpose, playing with a promise, mm-hmm. and and he was he was playing with a real strong strong commitment. So, what are you most excited <laughs> about this time? I feel like it's different. It is different, and I'm excited about everything the fans are excited about. It. Do we say a, a affirmative prayer or something for these <laughs> Eagles so folks can say this? You know, <laughs> repeat this to themselves. You know, that way they're not like pleading and begging. They're like, let's be affirmative about this. We know this is going to go down. You know, there was a great fight once, and I think it was Howard Cosell who said, down goes Frazier. The fans just need to get used to saying, down goes the Patriots. (laughs) They're coming down. They're going down. (laughs) And on that, I want to say thank you so much to Reverend Herb Lusk, the head chaplain for the Philadelphia Eagles. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. All right. Next up, he provides support so no one has to battle cancer alone. Every morning I wake up, I look at that as like a gift. One Philadelphia man's question that is changing the game, one patient at a time. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and one man is having a significant positive impact by helping families in the midst of the battle of their lives. That's the fight against cancer. Al Harris is founder of Cancer Who, a nonprofit that ensures no one has to stand on the front lines of this disease alone. Al is also one of KYW's 10 Philadelphia Game Changers in Black History Month who will be honored throughout the month of February. Al, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. And congratulations to you. No, I thank you guys. I appreciate this award so much. Now, you have made lots of headlines. You've been featured on CBS3 and are prolific on social media. But for the few who still haven't heard of what you do and why, tell us about the seed that grew into Cancer Who. Cancer Who is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps take care of people with cancer. So we go to chemo appointments, radiation appointments, doctor's appointments. We're just like the extended family to the person that's going through cancer and the family. I want to say about eight years ago, I had three family members that was going through cancer all at one time. My wife, stepfather, was going through colon cancer. My younger cousin was going through brain cancer. And one of my other cousins was going through stage four breast cancer. She beat that nine months. My younger cousin, I was looking at her support system, which was here and there. I seen a gap in where support systems lie. So what I wanted to do was create a organization where there will be no person alone 
while they're going through cancer, whether it's going through it at chemo or going through it at home. How important is this support system? And explain what that means in your eyes. To me, I look at it as is another form of medicine. The emotional support that people need going through cancer is very vital. Some hospitals rely on uh, chemo and radiation more so than emotional support. Wear that shoulder that they can lean on. And talk about the challenges families face. From the small families to the big families, I think when one person in a family goes through cancer, the entire family is affected. People taking off from work, people having to just change their daily schedules around from taking one to chemo every week or every day more so, and people just having that on their minds. Our organization steps in. If you can't take them to chemo, we can. If you can't sit there with them through the entire chemo, we can. Or if you can't go to radiation every day with them, we can, but we also can be there for the good times as well. So we're there for the cookouts, the barbecues, and the parties and stuff like that. So we're more like a family. We're not just like an organization. Tell me what said, this is going to be my full-time job. When I had my full-time job, I used to be at like chemo visits or a doctor's appointments and stuff like that, and I would have to leave. I would have to leave to visit, and it would just be eating me up that I would have to go. So one day, my wife just was like, oh, this is your vision. This is your passion. So... I think we need to like come to some type of decision on what you want to do because you're not happy. You're not happy working and doing cancer who. So I just decided to walk away from my job. And I think it was like probably the best decision I ever made. But far as what had me do it was I used to just walk in hospitals and I used to see people in the hospital by themselves, just sitting in the room by themselves. And every time I would go, at least be 10 rooms just a person in there going through chemo by themselves. I, I couldn't wear that on my conscience, seeing it and not at least trying to do something about it. So I understand you guys have come up with an innovative way to pay for all of this. I usually just walk around like the hospitals and all kinds of places and I have on like the hoodie or the shirt and stuff like that. And people would be like, oh, I like that shirt or I like the hoodie, where I get it from. People just start asking for it. So we just start selling gear, 100% of the gear that we sell. It goes right back into parking lots, the flowers, the toys. How do you feel? Like, I talk to a lot of our game changers, and they all, like, have this feeling that they get when they're doing the thing that they feel like they was put on this earth to do. I'm, I'm happy. Every morning I wake up, I look at that as, like, a gift, just to see people smiling and stuff like that. That's what brings happiness to me. Like, that's the paycheck right there. What's your vision for Cancer Who? In the next year or two, for us to uh, host our own walk. We need to have a walk here in Philly just because we were we were birthed in Philly. How many people you think you've impacted? At least over 100 families. This year is our fifth anniversary, so I, I want to say we're over 100 families. Well, congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was funny when we had our Game Changer Selection meeting, all of our committee members said he's definitely changing the game. How does that acknowledgement make you feel? It makes me feel great, but I think for our entire organization, I feel happy because I feel like we did it. It's not my award. It's our award. Everyone I talk to, I say, yeah, we won. We, we won the Game Changers Awards. Our hard work paid off and people actually acknowledged it. You can find Al Harris and his wonderful team. You can contact them cancerwho.org, cancerwho on all media platforms. Yes. Congratulations to you. Thank you. I appreciate you. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. Now, if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar... 
Let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As comedian Wanda Sykes once said, if you feel like there's something out there that you're supposed to be doing, if you have a passion for it, then stop wishing and just do it. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.